grateful to be gathered again together and not just gathered as, as a community of people that know each other and care about each other and enjoy one another's company, but, but to be gathered together as a people who are bound by the shared life that inheres in you the life of the living God that we share in by our union with the Lord Jesus Christ by your spirit. And Father, the, the union that we have with one another in Christ is something that's very hard for us to get our heads around. And it's certainly very difficult for us to live out in the practicalities of life day by day, uh, to recognize that we are in a profound and transcendent way members of one another if we are members of Christ. And we are humbled and overwhelmed by the idea that you have created a creation to sum up everything in your son, that your intent was to bind everything together in perfect harmony, perfect unity, perfect peace. And Father, that even in this present age, as we await the renewing of all things in the last day, you have called us as your people to manifest, to model this truth of renewal, this truth of new creation, this truth of summing up in Jesus, in the lives that we live, in the way that we are the community of believers in the world. I pray that you would help us to be faithful testifiers. And Father, as we gather in your name and in the confidence of the Spirit, we do pray that you would teach us and instruct us that as Mark said, you would open up your word by the Spirit to be the words of life, not just words on a page, not just philosophical or religious thought, but the very words of life, the words that have come from you. So help us, meet us in this time, minister to each one according to his faith, according to his need. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, so far we've spent a fair amount of time just kind of laying the foundation in Genesis for, uh, for the reason that what is given to us in Genesis, and particularly as we begin with the creation account, is foundational to how we understand all of the scriptures, and certainly foundational to how we understand this thing that we have called the fall, this, this uh, plight of human existence, this uh, brokenness that we all see in the world, that we all are well aware of. Often we can't get our heads and hands around what exactly the problem is. But as kind of a starting point for this, uh, you know, where we've arrived at, at um, this point in the study, it's important for us to recognize that we have to understand the fall and the calamity of the fall uh, what it really was about, what came out of it through the lens of the creation account. Often we just deal with the fall in terms of, okay, God gave a commandment. Uh, Adam and Eve were deceived. Eve was deceived. She deceived her husband. They ate of this fruit. Okay, they sinned. They disobeyed God. So now we have this guilt and this condemnation. 
But we have to read the account of the fall through the lens of the first two chapters of Genesis, through the lens of the creation account. Because the creation account is not about the mechanism of creation, but the meaning of creation, the purpose for which God created, the goal for which he created. And the fall has to be understood in terms of the overthrowing or the undermining of that specific purpose. So last time we introduced uh, the subject of the two trees, and I ask you to think about that, uh, the two trees that you see in the midst of the garden. Um, If you look in Genesis chapter 2, let me first say that, again, the, the, the way to understand why we seem to have two creation accounts, Genesis 1 and then Genesis 2, Genesis 1 shows us uh, the creation itself with its pinnacle of man created in the image and likeness of God in order that man would be the point of God's own presence and lordship in the world. Man was created as image bearer to exercise God's lordship in the world. Then in Genesis 2, we don't see a new creation account. We see the text explaining to us what is the significance of man as image bearer. Why did God create man in his own image and likeness? And uh, the way that I've expressed that is that man's being created in God's image and likeness is unto the goal that he would be image son. So God takes the man that he formed and he puts him in the garden, in the place that God himself inhabits. And he charges him with tending to, overseeing, not not gardening in the sense of hoeing and raking and pruning weeds, but being a custodian, a caregiver, serving the good of God's garden space. Man is that caregiver, the one who exercises God's wisdom, God's lordship, God's goodness in the world. So as representative and administering God's lordship, man is image son. And as he puts him in the garden, then the text tells us that there were two trees in the garden standing in places of prominence. You have the tree of life and then the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when you read them, again, through the lens of what the text is actually saying, uh, the point it's making, and in the context of the creation account itself, you see that the tree of life, its centrality in the garden, speaks to this principle of life as being essential to man fulfilling his created nature and design. God puts him in the garden, He says, watch over it, keep it, serve its good, a priestly function. And then here's this tree of life, and God says, eat freely of it. Eat freely of it. So the point is, somehow man's intimacy with God, his carrying out his function as image son, and therefore finding even his own fulfillment, his own Uh, intended design is connected with this principle of life that the scripture introduces at that point. And I'm kind of going through the notes, not point by point, but that's what I'm drawing from. So man was created for perpetual perfect intimacy with God, which requires that he participate in God's own life. How can there be 
true perfect intimacy with God except by sharing in God's own life, since man is the image and likeness of God. And yet, the text says man was created not from the dust of the ground, but created dust of the ground. His, the very name, the designation of man, Adam, is from Adama, which means the ground. He is Adama, he is Adam of Adama. And if you, and I'm not, I've given you some passages here that you can look at on your own, but the significance of this, this idea of dust of the ground, it doesn't mean man is made up of the mineral content taken from the soil. That's the way we would tend to want to read that. But it's talking about man's essential mortality, his frailty. He is dust. And you see that even in the unfolding of the curse. God says that you will return to dust, right? So I'll let you look at these passages on your own. But the point that the text is showing is that man, because he's created to be dust from the ground, he is a mortal being. He must eat of the tree of life to fulfill his created design, to be a living being of the sort that God himself is. So, and, and this may be controversial, we can talk about it more, but man as created in terms of how the text presents him is non-ultimate. Often we want to think that all that Jesus did was get us back to the pre-fall Adam. That in other words, the last Adam, the new Adam, is the same as the first Adam, except uh, he's the same as the first Adam unfallen. Well, in, in profound ways, the last Adam is greater than the first Adam. I'm not going to go into all of that today. But he is the ultimate expression of man, the ultimate fullness of man, whereas Adam himself, even unfallen, was non-ultimate. He was destined by God's design to become man indeed by sharing in God's life. In other words, becoming image son of the living one. That was God's ultimate design. And so the passages that I've given you here just speak to this issue of immortality as that which inheres in God himself and is bestowed by God upon those who share in his life. Immortality comes to define human beings as they share in the God who is the immortal one. So the tree of life then represents this idea of shalomic life. We talked about the principle of shalom, and I'm not going to rehearse that today. But it rep- the tree of life represents human life in the context of the harmony, the, the fullness, the settledness, the peace, the rest that God intended in the context of sacred space as where God is in relation to his creation. The Genesis account in Genesis 1 and 2 is concerned with this theme of sacred space. God's presence in relation to his creation centered in man who is his image and likeness. So God prepared that life for man in order that he would fulfill his created identity and function, which is to, in a very real way, be God's presence, life, rule, wisdom, love, goodness, enacted in the world that God created. So this tree of life keeps recurring through the scriptures as representative of that. The shalomic 
perfect, harmonious creation that God intends. You see it in the Proverbs. You see it in Ezekiel's prophecy. You see it, obviously, in the book of Revelation. The tree of life for the healing of the nations, right? The tree of life that the water of life runs out and gives life to the earth. So that's just kind of a brief synopsis of that, and that's something that that can certainly be studied more. But set alongside it, juxtaposed to it, in, in, in a sense kind of antithetical to it, is this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And because God says from every tree in the garden, including the tree of life, eat freely, and yet do not eat of this particular tree. The fact that it's forbidden... It exists, it stands there in the center of the garden, but it's forbidden to man, gives the sense of foreboding that something could and might go wrong here. Somehow this tree of the knowledge of good and evil threatens the good shalomic creation that God has put in place. Now I'm just talking about in terms of what the text is saying, the way it's unfolding its story. Not trying to deal with all the implications. But that tree provides the crucial textual material for understanding the nature of sin and death and their implications for this concept of sacred space or the place of encounter between human beings and God himself. Because what's going to come from interaction with this tree is what we call the fall and the curse and the, you know, the, the ultimate dissolution or the movement towards dissolution of all things. So the, the, the scripture wants you to see this tree as threatening the condition, the shalom and shabbat, the peace and rest that, his, has God, that God has put into place and that is in a sense symbolized by the tree of life. God says eating of it would incur the sentence of death. In the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And it doesn't mean in that moment or in the next 24 hours. It simply means when you eat of it. This will be the consequence of of interacting with, laying hold of, eating of this tree. So what would happen from eating of it is the sentence of death, which would be the settling in, the, the consigning man to perpetual mortality and therefore exclusion from the tree of life. And you see that in that after the eating of this tree, what does God do? He drives Adam and Eve from the garden, and specifically away from any access to the tree of life. So eating of this tree excludes man from life. And that life and death idea have to be understood in terms of that. So when we talk about human righteousness or the righteousness of anything, we're talking about a thing's conformity to the truth of what it is. Genesis has spent so much time in chapters 1 and 2 explaining who man is, his identity, his nature, his function. And so his righteousness is his conformity to who God created him to be. It's not a moral thing per se, not that it has nothing to do or no implications in morality, but it's it's ultimately an ontological and functional thing. It's a thing conforming to the truth of what it is. Ontological means the, the essential nature of something. 
So the second tree then represents a threat to that righteousness, not in the sense that man might be disobedient to some bare commandment in some sense. It's not, it's not a threat of immorality in the way that we tend to want to think of it, but in the sense that man would fall short of God's intent that he share in his life. And failing to attain to God's life would be the doom of man's true humanity. Why? Because he's the image and likeness of God. Human beings cannot be what God created them to be unless they are bound up in his own life. They can't fulfill their, their identity as his likeness without sharing in his life because God is life. So man's judgment then to be consistent with himself as image bearer must be God's judgment. Sharing in, or judging independently violates man's own identity and purpose and forfeits his humanity. And that tells us how to understand this knowledge of good and evil that was somehow bound up in this, this symbol of this tree. And I agree with those who say that the knowledge of good and evil speaks of this, this concept of wisdom. And I mentioned last time that Eve, even as she looked at this tree, she discerned that it was good for making one wise. She saw it as a, a source of wisdom, a way to become wise. That knowledge and wisdom itself aren't evil. If they were, then God would have to be evil because he says of himself that the man now possesses the knowledge of good and evil. He's become like us. God has the knowledge of good and evil. So knowing good and evil, possessing wisdom is not itself evil or wrong. The issue is how wisdom was coming through this means. In other words, God's intent was that man would share in his wisdom, but by sharing in his life. The implication is by eating freely of the tree of life, by obtaining being, in a sense, uh, conformed to God's own life and likeness, man would become wise as God is wise. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the Proverbs say. The issue, then, is autonomous wisdom. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil represents man's seduction and quest for independent, autonomous wisdom, that he would attain wisdom from within and out through himself. He would become wise in and of himself. Wisdom as a purely human construct and attainment apart from sharing in God's life. So that's what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil represents. And, and when they eat of it, then you have the promise of a curse coming upon the creation or coming upon the serpent and the ground. And I mentioned last time, God doesn't curse Adam or Eve. He curses the ground, the creation that they were to tend to, and he curses the serpent. So Adam's disobedience, and really it was the man and the woman, I, I don't, I'm not going to belabor this, but, but, but Adam coming to see that Eve is taken from his side is the idea. She is 
the counterpart that completes him. So for man to fulfill his role as, as the tender and the keeper of God's creation, the keeper of sacred space, it's not good for him to be alone in that task. He needs someone to make him complete, and the completeness of man is in the woman, Isha, who is of Ish. So together they become the human creature that is the image and likeness of God. And you see that even in chapter 1. Let us make man in our image. Male and female, he made them. So in, in, in a unique way that I'm not going to go into today, the image of God is not male, it's male and female complementary together the image of God is male and female man is not complete except as male and female so it's in that way now that the curse comes into the world in relation to both of them but this curse that comes from this 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 desolation is not to be the final word God promises the recovery of life Essentially, in pronouncing a curse on the serpent, God says there will be perpetually enmity between your seed and the woman's seed. And the seed of the serpent doesn't mean eggs of a snake or uh, little satanic beings or you know baby demons or anything like that. It really theologically refers to those who are... Um, in their existence, in their mindset, in the way they do human existence, they are a reflection and a manifestation of the satanic mind, right? So you see in the New Testament, the children of the serpent are those who are the contrarians to God and his mind and his way. So there's now to be this enmity between two lines of human existence, between the, the, the children of Eve in that sense and the children of the serpent. And God says this conflict will reach ahead in a particular seed, singular pronoun. He will bruise your head, says to the serpent, you will bruise his heel. Same verb, but the distinction is between head and heel. And so the blow to the head is to be viewed as greater than the blow to the heel. You don't know exactly what that will entail. But Adam perceives that as God promising somehow that through a human descendant of Eve, life will be restored because he names her Eve as the result of that, the mother of all the living. Death has now come, right? Death has been pronounced. The curse on the ground. And the, and the heart of this principle of death is contrariness to created design and function so the harmony of the creation the shalom of the creation the interdependence the mutuality the mutual blessedness within the creation is now shattered everything is at odds with everything else and everything is in at odds within itself and everything is at odds with god but somehow now through this conflict between the serpent seed and the woman's seed reaching an apex in a particular seed, somehow that will be the means by which God will restore life. And so she is pronounced to be the mother of all the living. But God drives them from the garden with that promise, perpetual conflict, but one that will ultimately yield life. 
So in a very real way, they're driven from the garden. They're driven away from the tree of life. They're driven away from this communion with God, but with a very vague, but nonetheless, a very sure promise that that's not to be the last word. And I want to spend the rest of our time then talking about the Cain and Abel episode, um, just because, as I say here in the notes on page two, this is the beginning of provisional sacred space. What do I mean by that? Adam and Eve's, the, you know, the human creature's relationship with God, that intimacy, that familiarity, that life with God that God had established in this very good creation has now been broken. But the, the re- relationship between God and human beings hasn't been broken in the absolute sense, in the sense that human beings no longer have any sense of the divine or knowledge of God or interest in spiritual things. Uh, human beings are still the image and likeness of God. And so there is still this dynamic of encounter with God that exists even after the fall. But it's in a provisional sort of way. It's no longer the garden. It's no longer that. It's become something else. And what the Cain and Abel episode does is show us that provisional sacred space takes two forms. Um, what I would call pseudo-sacred space, falsified human uh, sacred space, an encounter with God that is false, that is completely contrary, and one that is provisional, though broken. One that, that is what God would have in the context of the curse. Let me put it this way. The driving out of, of man from the presence of God was not God's last word for the world. He would continue to, to act and operate and be present in the world towards this work of restoration. We'll see shortly he's going to call a man Abram, through whom he will begin to bring the world back to himself. So he's still interactive in the world. He's still reaching out to people. People are still trying to reach out to him. And he puts a structure in place or form for that to happen. But there's also another way that human beings naturally want to interact with the divine, which is totally false and self-initiated. Those are the two, the positive and the negative sides of what comes after the fall. So man's grasp at autonomous wisdom is how the scripture wants you to understand. And that fractured the divine human relationship and left man in this state of death, consigned to his mortality, and more importantly, dead to the truth of himself. Cut off from God and the knowledge of God and the life of God, man is incapable of knowing who he truly is or living an authentically human life. So the initial form of sacred space is destroyed when the man and the woman are driven out of that creation. So now sacred space, and by that phrase, again, I mean the, the, the uh, place of divine human encounter. Where, and not so much a place, but, but this whole scheme of, of people interacting with encountering the divine. This encounter between people and God, that's this thing of sacred space. Now it's become a matter of strained, fearful encounter in the context of estrangement. 
the very, if you say, what is the fall really all about? What is the main issue in the problem? It's estrangement or alienation between human beings and God at the most basic essential level. So the fall didn't eradicate human consciousness of God or even the need to engage him. When we look at the Cain and Abel episode, interestingly, we go right from being driven out of the garden to uh, these two boys, these two sons of Adam and Eve, coming and presenting an offering to God. That's the very first thing we see. Not their birth, not their childhood, not where did Adam live? You know, where did they where did they build a house? How did he you know where how did he how was his life trying to eke something out of the ground? The very first thing we see is these two boys who themselves are sons of the fall, worshiping God, and together they represent both sides of that new form of worship. That's what the scripture wants you to see. It's not interested in telling you what were they like, you know, how did they grow up, who was older, you know, who was taller, who was this, what were their interests. All you know is this thing, this this act of worship. And what the text wants you to see is how interaction, how the knowledge of God, how relating to God has changed because of the fall. What it's done is introduce psychological and spiritual distance into worship because of this new determinative reality of alienation. So independence and autonomous wisdom, the promise of consummate humanness, you will become fully like God if you will just lay hold of wisdom yourself. It's come at great cost. Man's intimate familiarity with God has been replaced by disquiet, discomfort, fear. And God, you see from even that worship episode that he had become increasingly foreign, mysterious, and even frightening. The loss of natural, comfortable, personal intimacy meant that worship, which involves knowledge, encounter, and interaction, was now a matter of mediated distance through symbolism and sacrament. You see nothing in Genesis 1 and 2 about altars or about offerings or about any kind of physical, tangible way or scheme or or implements of interaction, of worshiping God. It's a familiar, uh, familiar, easy intimacy with nothing between it. Now, in order to span that distance, there has to be a mechanism or some sort of mediation that takes place. And that's what you see with Cain and Abel. So, you know, the first thing to note is how their offerings were the same. We tend to highlight, you know, front and why Abel's was accepted and Cain's wasn't. But the first thing to note is how they're the same. Both show that both of their offerings show that the curse of, of estrangement had passed to them from their parents. They both have to approach God in the same way through mediated distance. Both men's worship reflected the reality of distance between them and God. Distance addressed through ritual offerings. Both had to encounter God in the same way. 
both brought physical offerings to a certain site. Now, we don't know why, but it says they brought offerings to God. So they must have had some sense of a particular place, a sacred site, uh, where they would bring this offering to God. And the text isn't concerned with where did they get the idea of offerings and what made them think of that and how did they have an altar and where was it? You're not supposed to ask those kinds of questions because they don't matter. I mean, we can think about it, but we don't have the answer. And the text doesn't care to tell you because it's not important to the story. The point is that they both brought an offering to a sacred site, which shows that sacred space had now taken on a temporal and a spatial quality. Encounter with God was now sacramental. Sacraments are just um, rituals that have a a time-space quality to them, even even, um, uh, physical things associated with them. Daily Bible reading, in, in the way that we think of it, is a is a sacramental thing. It's a ritual thing. An interaction with the holy book is a way of of trying to mediate, you know, presence with God, right? in, In the way that we naturally approach things. So that's the fundamental way in which now man's relationship with God had changed. As to the distinctions in the two uh, men, Cain and Abel's, in the distinction in their worship, it's the difference between provisional and pseudo-sacred space. In other words, encounter with God as suited to the post-fall relationship, suited to the post-fall relationship, versus encounter as reflecting the post-fall relationship. Abel's offering was suited to the post-fall relationship. Cain, in, or let me say their worship, Abel's was suited to the post-fall relationship. Cain's was reflective of it. It was reflective of this alienation and estrangement. So Abel's offering was pleasing to God, yet his worship, too, assumed the form of symbol and sacrament. Worship is a matter of mediated distance. Cain's offering, like Abel's, was entirely voluntary, and their free acts of worship testify that man remains image son. He still continues to actively seek out the divine, whatever he thinks that to be. So they shared the same approach in worship and brought offerings taken from the fruit of their labors. One was a shepherd, one was a tiller of the ground, right? They each brought of their own produce, their yield, And yet the text says God had no regard for Cain and his offering. And he made it clear to Cain that he had no regard for him or his offering. And we don't know exactly how, uh, but again, what matters is that God's displeasure was directed toward Cain himself, not the form of offering he brought. And I mention that because it's so common for us to say, oh, the issue was a blood offering versus you know, a produce offering. And Abel understood that you cannot approach God without blood. It has to be a blood sacrifice. 
And when you bring the fruit of the ground, your crops and your, you know, whatever, that's not a blood sacrifice. Well, there's two things wrong with that. Number one, it's anachronistic in that the idea of blood offerings being uh, sacramentally written into to the worship of God did not come until later. There's no indication that God had said, gee, I want a blood offering. You can't read that back into an earlier time or an earlier circumstance. But even more than that, the, the very notion that somehow the, the offering of, of uh, crops or the produce of the ground is unacceptable to God uh, is falsely flat in that, that crop offerings were a part of Israel's offering regimen to God, right? Pentecost was a grain offering. First fruits is a grain offering. So it's not that God wants blood and he doesn't want, you know, crops out of the field. That's not the idea. The issue is that Cain's offering was ultimately concerned with Cain. And you see that in the way that he responded. When God was displeased with him and his offering, and he knew that he was pleased with his brother and his offering, Cain didn't say, forgive me. He went and he killed his brother. Because it was really about him, right? How dare you prefer his over mine? And it again speaks to this thing of pseudo-worship. In the context of the fall, human worship, because we are centered in ourselves, we have become locked within a broken self where all of life, this autonomous wisdom is thinking, acting, and judging out from ourselves. We are the measure of all things. And so even our worship is ultimately self-referencing and self-concerned. And we certainly see it very much in our culture that is where the worship of God is so much and even openly and and unapologetically oriented towards worshiping God in order to have him arise on my behalf according to my need or what it is that I seek, what it is that I want. There are whole strands of Christianity that teach giving money or, you know, in some sense, giving to God with the promise that you 30, 60, 100 fold, right? So you sow your seed in order to get this big harvest back from God. And, and it's the way that all people naturally envision this idea of deity or worship is that these powers out there, I find a way to reach out to them. Here's the, symbol, the sacramentalism. I find a way to span that distance and to cause that deity or that power to become available, receptive, amenable to me and my needs. You see that with the prophets of Baal, right? Slashing themselves to get the attention of Baal. See how much I'm doing. Come and, and hear me and, and, and come to my rescue. And so human worship, as it, as it naturally occurs, it recognizes this distance, but it seeks to span it in order to make God or the deity, whatever we think he is, uh, to use his power on my behalf. On my behalf as I understand my good, as my wisdom tells me what is good, right, proper, needful, appropriate. 
And this causes even people who profess to be Christians often to wander from the faith because God didn't show up the way they thought. God can't be good because he didn't do X. God can't be wise because he didn't do X. God can't care about me because he did or he didn't or whatever. And so it's this autonomous wisdom that becomes the lens through which we look at all things, all people, all circumstances, the world, life, and God himself. That's what's represented in Cain's paradigm of pseudo-worship. And the subsequent narrative, uh, 4.16 and following, shows that God consigned him to be a wanderer and a scavenger. There's a kind of heightening of the fall even in relation to him, the curse. God said to Adam, the ground is cursed. It's now alienated from you. You were to serve it. You were to, in a sense, administer my my, uh, love and goodness and, and care for the creation, this priestly mediation. But now there's this enmity in place, and you're going to have to fight the ground. It's going to be hard work to survive in this world. And in the end, it's going, to, it's going to wear us out, and it's going to kill us, and then the ground's going to consume our bodies. Man who is dust will, in a sense, be consumed by the dust. But it's even worse with Cain because he won't even eke out a living from the earth. He's going to be a scavenger. He's going to be a wanderer. He's going to be a wanderer. But again, in his own wisdom, what does Cain do? He settles in a place and he builds a city. God says you're to be a wanderer and a scavenger, but he tries to establish his own place of significance. And he has a son that he names Enoch. And and Enoch means consecrated or devoted or dedicated. And he names that city after his son, and it becomes a tribute to himself. A son in his own image and likeness. He names this place. He's building his own habitation in the earth. It's a kind of denial of the reality of what God has put in place, seeking to, in a sense, create his own reality that has him at the center of it. And then you see the offspring that flow out of Cain uh, being associated with man's accomplishments in music and the arts and architecture, metallurgy, building great things, right? So in, in Cain, you see the curse beginning to increase, and then it ends climactically in chapter 4 with uh, the, the kind of bringing into a very concentrated form what comes from this autonomous human wisdom. And you see that in the poem of Lamech. How profoundly powerful is this an- antithesis and destructive uh, capability of human wisdom? Cain had taken a man's life unjustly, and now he says, someone will take my life. And God says, God puts a mark on him, and he says, don't touch him. He's to suffer. He's, don't, don't take his life. He's to suffer as a murderer, and whoever kills him will be avenged sevenfold. Well, Lamech says, let, let me be avenged 77-fold, Right? Let me be, or 70-fold, let me be avenged because I've ki- I killed a boy for just, what, what does he say, cursing me. And let, let's look at that real quick, and then I'm about done. 
I'll quote this correctly. He says, this is verse 23, I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold in the sense that anyone who touches Cain, Cain's ordained to suffer for his taking the life of his brother, and therefore God will punish sevenfold anyone who, who interrupts that suffering. Lamech says, let me suffer 77-fold. In other words, this is all increasing in its severity. The violence, the unrighteousness, the self-seeking, the self-concern. So in closing, then, Genesis 1 through 4 is giving us the answer to why life in this world is the way it is. We all know the world is broken. We all know we're broken. We all know relationships are broken. We all know the world is a broken place. And what it tells us is that all human and creational calamities, evils, and woes are the fruit of man existing in his own right. Man in his own right is what's gone wrong with the world. Man seeking to be man independent of God. Man seeking to become wise independent of God. So man being the image of God, even in his brokenness, even in his evil and his corruption, is capable of great accomplishment. And we see that in every kind of arena. Technology, science, architecture, medicine, philanthropy, right? Man is capable of great things. Putting little rovers on Mars... But severed from God and his life, man's accomplishments derive from his own autonomous pseudo-wisdom, and therefore they reflect and perpetuate the folly, alienation, and corruption of pseudo-human existence. And I just mention here, as an example, what we call the law of unintended consequences, right? A law is something that's always true in every, it's an invariable, right? Why do we call it the law of unintended consequences? It's because in every single circumstance, no matter how wise, how thoughtful, how careful, how prudent, how thoroughly farmed out, everything that we put our hands to ends up not working out the way we thought. There's always unintended consequences. The best laid plans, right? Even the best of our wisdom always ends up exacerbating the brokenness of the world. So man as his own pseudo-God, his wisdom is over all of his works, just as the psalmist says God's wisdom is over all of his works. Man's wisdom is over all of his works, but the way God put it through his prophets is everything you touch becomes defiled and corrupted. But our wisdom is, man's wisdom is over all of his works, but rather than bringing order out of non-order, which is what God's wisdom did, right? The the creation account wants us to see that God's wisdom order out of non-order. Tohu ambohu, uninhabitable, uninhabited. God begins ordering and filling. God brings order out of non-order, but human wisdom brings disorder out of order. And non-order and disorder are not the same things. Non-order is the absence of order. Disorder is the, is the making dysfunctional and disordered of that which was orderly. 
So God, God's wisdom works towards building order. Man's wisdom works towards dismantling it. It works towards disharmony, disintegration, dissolution, and the triumph of death. That's what we see in the world. So the creator's disposition towards this woeful circumstance was the promise of renewal, not repair. God didn't promise to polish the apple. He wasn't going to move the pieces around. He was going to renew a new creation. The creational curse could only be remedied through a new divine work of ordering. Not ordering non-order as he did in the first instance, but ordering disorder through bringing life out of death. This is what we see by the time we're done with the first three chapters, of four chapters of Genesis. If we want to think about how would we preach the gospel from the early chapters of Genesis, this is how. Man's autonomous wisdom had caused this calamity that we call the curse, but so it would be that man would remedy that, but as true image son. Man's failure to fulfill his identity as image son brought this calamity. Now, as true image son, in other words, as possessing the wisdom of the one whose image he bears, man would undo this. Man as possessing God's wisdom through living communion in the spirit. I and you, you and me. And I put these quotations here. I'll read the one passage and then we're done. But these Luke ones are speaking about Jesus. Immediately after his circumcision, Luke says he was growing in wisdom and stature. And then you see him at age 12, you know, when he, he comes back from, you know, when he stays behind in Jerusalem and he goes back to be with his parents in Nazareth. Um, Luke says, and he continued to grow in wisdom and stature and favor with God and with men. And Paul says in Colossians 2 that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He is man as wise not man as autonomously wise, man as wise by sharing in the life of God. The I and you, you and me. And so just to close, and then I'll, I'll read this closing prayer. Think about, listen to this as, as Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians in terms of what we've, we've been talking about. Paul says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the good news, to proclaim the good news, not in cleverness of speech, that the cross of Christ should, should be emptied of its power. The word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. And Paul asks, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? You know, the educated person. That was the, the idea of the scribe. The scholar. Where is the great debater of this age? Hasn't God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world in its wisdom did not come to know him, God was well pleased through the apparent foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe, to bring them into a place of wisdom. For indeed, Jews ask for signs, Greeks seek for wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified, 
a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called out by God, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness, the apparent foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God, the apparent weakness of God that as seen in Christ is stronger than men. For consider your own calling, brethren, that there were not many wise among you according to the flesh. You look at yourselves as believers. How many of you were wise according to the flesh? Not many of you were mighty. Not many of you were noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise and the weak things of the world to shame the things which appear to be strong. And the base things of the world, the despised things, those things God has chosen, the things that in the world's esteem are not, that are utterly irrelevant. God has chosen those things that he might nullify the things that men hold in high esteem, that no one should boast before God. It is by his doing that you are in Christ Jesus, who by God's design became on our behalf for our sake and ultimately to us, wisdom from God and righteousness and consecration and redemption that as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. See, Paul's playing off of these ideas. He knew the scripture very well and he understood these, these things. So let me just close. I, I think if you listen to the, the message from before, I closed with this prayer from Andrew Murray. This is called With Christ in the School of Prayer. So let me just close in prayer with this Andrew Murray prayer, and um, then we'll, we'll be done. This is under the heading where he says, Lord, teach us to pray. He writes, Blessed Lord, you know that this though it be one of the first and simplest and most glorious lessons in your school, is to our hearts one of the hardest to learn. What it is to pray. We know so little of the love of the Father. Lord, teach us so to live with the Father that his love may be to us nearer, clearer, dearer than the love of any earthly father. And let the assurance of his hearing our prayer be as much greater than the confidence in an earthly parent, as the heavens are higher than earth, as God is infinitely greater than man. O Lord, show us that it is only our unchildlike distance from the Father that hinders the answer to prayer, and lead us on to the true life of God's children. Lord Jesus, it is fatherlike love that wakens childlike trust. O reveal to us the Father and his tender, pitying love that we may become childlike and experience how in the child life lies the power of prayer. How in the child life lies the power of prayer. O blessed Son of God, the Father loves you and has given you all things. And you love the Father and have done all things he commanded you. And therefore you have the power to ask all things. Lord, give us your spirit the spirit of the son make us childlike as you were on the earth and let every prayer be breathed in the faith that as the heaven is higher than the earth so god's father love and his readiness to give us what we ask surpasses all that we can think or imagine amen